Narelle Urquhart's life story is turbulent, heartbreaking, and yet inspiring. Growing up in traumatic circumstances, Narelle left home at just 14 years of age, finding herself homeless and in an abusive relationship. Years of losses and ongoing mental health battles eventually led her to Queensland, where an indigenous elder and pastor took her to church that very first Sunday. There she found faith, love, acceptance and hope, which she's passed on to her four children. As both an artist and the Indigenous Engagement Advisor at Bond University, Norell uses her tool bag of life experiences to help Indigenous young people who struggle with identity, as well as educate others in what their role is in the Indigenous and Australian story. I'm Carl Fays and this is my interview with Norell Urquhart. Now tell us about your early years. Okay, so, um, so I'm a Wiradjuri woman. I was born in Leeton, New South Wales. My mum's Aboriginal and my dad's white Australian with a Scottish heritage. So Urquhart or Urquhart, mm -hmm. that's where the Loch, Me Loch Ness Monster's supposed to be. Um, so yeah, so I was born in Leeton and so was my mum and my grandmother. So we have a long line there. Mm -hmm. And my mum was actually part of the Stolen generation. So she mm -hmm. was taken from her parents when she was 11. And um, she was a domestic servant, so she was trained in the homes to serve people. And she ended up in Canberra until she was 18. So from the age of 14 to 18, she was a domestic. And then um, from 18, she went back to Leeton, met my father and was married. And so I'm one of six children. And then when I was around four years old, my parents separated and we were taken to a Catholic nunnery in Gosford. So King Cumber. Mm. Yeah, so that was the start of my childhood, I suppose. And um, yeah, so essentially the six of us were put into the homes from the age of four. And um, we were in there for a couple of years. And then my dad took us out and took us to Kerrang, Victoria. And so um, I have quite strong memories of the homes and what happened and how we were treated. And also um, the nuns used to want to have respite, like um, arrest from us. So we'd get fostered out around through Gosford um, over the weekends and things like that. So that was sort of, all that was pretty traumatic and mm. not knowing where our parents were. And yeah, so that was kind of the start of my life up until I was six. So when you look, look back on that, it is traumatic. Like mm. it just, it's a kind of trauma that continues to, you know, influ influence you. Yeah, it does. Um, it does in some ways, but Essentially, it's kind of, now it's kind of like my tools, mm -hmm. like it's my equipment now and how I navigate my life. So even though it was um, traumatic and it wasn't right, there's things in it now that I use in my everyday life. Like it has made who I am, yeah. um, but it's essentially um, through God and his healing and his plan and purpose for me, I've sort of become an overcomer yeah. in those circumstances, even yeah. though it doesn't remove the responsibility yep. of the people that, yeah, so. Going back into your story, you went to, to Kerrang in Victoria? Yeah, yeah, so I was um, six when we went there. So my father got us out um, and took us to Victoria. I have quite a thick file actually um, from Department of Community Services and Human Services that I got a few years ago. So everything's recorded, like, mm. And so um, I think my dad took us out for a re weekend release, but he didn't take us back. And so the, in the papers, it says how they're trying to find us. And so my dad actually took us to a little place called Nye West initially. 
and um, we were out on this farmhouse and it didn't have electricity and we were there for a short time um, in pretty bad poverty. So my dad went into Kerrang to get a Centrelink payment like a sole parent and through that process he was given a housing commission. And so, this, so he had the six of us, so he's white, we're Aboriginal. Um, so we go to, to Kerrang and um, essentially from the age of six I grew up on the welfare and so we, we always had a welfare person that, and sort of department, I suppose, that would come and check that our house was clean and that we had food and we went to school. Um, but our house wasn't that clean and we did go to school, but we didn't have much food because um, my dad was an alcoholic. And so, um, yeah, so from the age of six, we lived in Kerrang up until I was 10. And then when I was 10, my dad actually moved us to Robinvale, so into Sunraysia, so on the Murray and um, for work. And initially we stayed in a caravan, which is six kids and a, an adult male in a caravan is pretty full on. Yeah. And um, it was down near the river. And then we got a house in town and I grew up in Robinvale from the age of 10. Mm. And uh, Robinvale is an interesting town. There's a lot of Aboriginal followers and um, there is not like non-Indigenous people there. And um, so from the age of 10, like Robinvale, they kind of work hard, drink hard, fight really hard. <laughs> and so I sort of grew up in a pretty violent town from yeah. the age of 10. And then um, like Robinvale was a town in, so it's still the 70s and Aboriginal people were still fruit pickers kind of thing. Like we weren't, like I knew from a very young age, well, I thought that I wouldn't get a job in town and I wouldn't get to this. So I already had a sense of hopelessness about myself as an Aboriginal mm. by the time I was 13. And a part of that was like being in the homes and going through schools and being in foster care. I would hear a lot of things about myself as an Aboriginal. So I would hear like no hoper, abo coon, black bludger, half caste, quarter caste, one eighth. And so I remember even teachers talking to me about my percentage, like you're a quarter caste, you're a half caste. And so, I kind of grew up from a very young age thinking that my future didn't, wasn't going to amount to, to too much. So that's why I left school at 13. I, I thought, why would I need to be here yeah. when I'm not going to get anywhere? And so I left at 13 and then I left home at 14. 14 is yeah. pretty young to move out of home and get into yeah, the world. Yeah, that's hectic. How'd you survive? <laughs> Uh, so not very well. So um, I met um, a boy, which is crazy because I've got four kids. And so I met this um, young Aboriginal fella and I ran away with him and I went to Melbourne. And so we were squatters. And so Fitzroy, the big housing commission there. Yeah, so we um, lived there probably for around 10 months in and around Melbourne. And so I just ate out of soup kitchens and um, got money off the winos, like the fellas that drank in the park. And uh, it was like, Melbourne's not a really good place to be homeless. Mm. Like here it's beautiful, um, like the weather. Um, but my partner at the time, he was quite abusive. So he broke my sternum and just kind of made a mess of me for about 10 months. And through that time, I had to get medical treatment for something else. And they saw that I had bruises and so they rang Department of Community Services, it would have been Human Services back then. And uh, through that process, I took off, like I ran away from him. And I was only, I'd just turned 15 
And then, um, I don't know, welfare found me and I was picked up and taken down to Warrawa College, a school outside of Melbourne at Hillsville. And so I was 15, I had been homeless for a year and a half, arrived there and the whole time I was there, I was only there for about six weeks, I didn't feel well. And so what had happened was I'd actually arrived there pregnant. Mm. And I remember, so I didn't know I was pregnant. I remember the principal coming in, like I was called to the office. I went and sat in there and then she walked in and she was one of the original Sapphires. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, she was very glamorous. She always wore high heels and I never seen an Aboriginal lady like that. Anyway, so I just remember her heels coming in and um, yeah, she told me I was pregnant and so, and I was 15. So then I, I got picked up. It was really scary because um, the person I didn't know picked me up, took me back to Robin Vale, and by that stage my dad didn't have our, our housing commission anymore. So he was living in a chicken coop, so out in the fruit block. And so I lived in a chicken coop for a time. And um, This is as a f pregnant 15-year-old? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like it's like it was big for chickens essentially. Um, <laughs> Okay for people. So we had two beds in there and we actually had a stove in there, which again is not, not safe. But so we were out in the fruit block and, but it had a, a drop toilet and the shower was under the water tank. And so I didn't want to stay there. I thought people could see me in the shower mm. and stuff. I was quite, so I moved back into Robin Bale, but I didn't have anywhere to live. So I just slept at anyone's houses right through my pregnancy. So I slept on the floor a lot. And then um, probably a month before I was due, I had to go and have an ultrasound over at Mildura Base Hospital. And my older sister came with me. And while I was in there, I started feeling quite ill, like really sick. And um, we came back to Robin Vale. We were coming back to the doctors to give them the ultrasound. Mm -hmm. But while we were there, like doctors and nurses came in at, at Mildura. And um, anyway, so they sent us back. They told us to go back and give the information to the doctors, gave them the information. And then as we're walking out, the nurses come and grabbed us and taken us back in. And so um, my son had died. So, and, and I was eight months pregnant. And so then from there, I had to wait more than a week, which is full mm. on, um, to then go into Majura and then have him. And then I brought him back and had a funeral. And um, when I went to the hospital, I didn't have any parents with me and I was 16. And so, and the hospital wanted to keep him. I don't, I don't know what that, if that was common practice mm. or whatever, but I, I argued with the hospital to release him. And then um, I took him home and had a funeral. And so, so I was only 16 and I'd been homeless and had a lot of abuse and alcoholic home, no mother. So a lot of things had happened to me by the time I was 16. Mm. This podcast is brought to you by the Ministry of Olive Tree Media. Our vision is to create a library of resources that tell the story of the game-changing message of Jesus. This interview was recorded for our latest documentary, Faith Runs Deep. Our other award-winning series, Jesus the Game Changer and Towards Belief, plus many other small group, church and school series are available on our Watch Plus platform for a small monthly partnership. 
As you partner with us, you not only get access to compelling video content and interactive discussion guides, but you also support the creation of more resources that help share the gospel message. To become a partner and get access to Faith Runs Deep, visit olivetreemedia.com.au. So here you are, you've lost your son, you're 16. Mm. Where do you end up? So I stayed in Robinvale for a time, um, homeless. And then um, I, after, after the new year, I met a new partner. So um, Brendan and was with him only for a short time. And then we decided to move to Queen because his father was living there. And then my mum was in Canberra. And so I was 17 when we moved there. And um, so, when we got there, so I was only ever a fruit picker. There's no fruit picking in Canberra and Queanbeyan. So I had to get a job. And the only job I could get was checkout. So at Woolworths. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, so I went, started work there and I was there for a little while. And back then they used to sell like sheep brains and cow tongues, and which is okay if you're into that, but um, from that, essentially, I just thought, I'm going back to school. Like, I'm not doing this. I, I hated it that much. So I actually went back to TAFE mm. and did my year 11 and 12. And when I did my year 12 um, certificate, I actually got first in state for maths. And so I won this uh, yep. state award and was on the paper and stuff like that. And, and when that happened, I wasn't, like, I was proud of myself, but I wasn't surprised because I could do the payrolls from the age of 11. Mm. Yeah, so, because um, even that's smart, like it's better to be under a tree than up a tree picking oranges. And so it was never my ability, it wasn't my ability through primary and high school and that it was more my circumstances. Yep. So, yeah, so I got first in state for maths. And then um, by that time I was 19 and I started a family. Yeah. Okay. That's with your partner who you'd been with in Yeah, yeah. In so Brendan, yeah. yeah. So um, I had three daughters to Brendan in um, Queen Bean and we bought a house when I was 23 and he was a bricklayer and it, it, it kind of looked okay, but it just wasn't. And mm. that's because I wasn't okay. And in a sense, he wasn't okay. Yeah. And so we, you sort of, you carry the generational trauma and your lived trauma. Yeah. And we were still quite young, but we started a family. We had three daughters there. And um, we separated when I was in my late 20s. And a lot of things happened, like my dad died, his brother had died, my nephew died, my cousin died. I had a house fire. Um, I ended up with PTSD. Mm. And I essentially, yeah, just got very sick mentally. It was kind of like through my life, like all those traumas were like deposits in the bank. Yeah. Yep. So trauma, trauma, trauma. Yep. And then in my late 20s, it paid interest. Yeah. And I got really sick. And yeah. I actually tried to commit suicide and then um, ended up in a psych ward twice. And through it all, my lowest weight was 32 kilos. Yeah. And so I was just so sick. And that went on, like the toughest part of that was probably a year and a half. Mm. Yeah, but I probably suffered for about four years yeah. of trauma. Yeah, it's it's a bleak picture. Yeah. How did it turn around? Yeah. So what happened was, um, so in in Queen in Canberra, so all those things happened and very traumatic, and 
even having a house fire, mm. like crazy. And so I separated from my partner and I needed to get out of there because of just violence and mm. stuff. So I was quite violent. So w when I said, in my, in my younger years, I grew up in a pretty rough town, essentially that taught me how to defend myself and also make sure I didn't get hurt anymore. So I was quite violent, like mm. through my teenage years and through my adult life until I was 30. I'm retired now, that's kind of what I say. <laughs> and so, yeah, so through that period, I got pretty violent and ended up in court a couple of times and just ended up with the wrong kinds of people. And I had three daughters and I decided to, to leave in a hurry because I was in a women's refuge. And um, I went to the airport and the only place I could get tickets was to Brisbane. I actually tried to go to Perth. I wanted to get as far away from Canberra as I could. Anyways, I couldn't get to Perth, so I flew into, um, into Brisbane, went to an Aboriginal hostel overnight, and then rang a refuge number, and the only uh, space available was on the Gold Coast. And so that's how I got here 20 years ago. And when I got to the Gold Coast, I was in the refuge, and because I'm an artist, I wanted to meet the elders and get permission, like follow our cultural protocols. And um, I said to the refuge that I was going to ask them about a house and, and they told me that they don't give houses to people in refuge, gen, refuges mm. because they're trans, mm -hmm. like they move so much. Anyways, I went and um, they took me into Cowan, the Aboriginal organisation, and I was waiting for um, Uncle Graham, the elder, and he was the director at the time of, the, of Cowan. And while I was waiting for him, there was a pamphlet mm -hmm. and it said Murray Koori Christian Gathering. So Murray's and Koori's, that's us. And it was our terminology. And so I picked it up and I'm like, oh, what's this about? And then I had my three daughters and I went up, met Uncle Graham, told him what had happened to me and he was so good. And he gave me a house on the spot and he took me to church. He was a pastor, yeah. And so, and so I just literally arrived in Queensland. And actually when I was a kid, because there's a lot of Queenslanders and that, that and fellows from Tweed that would come and pick fruit down there. And so I grew up hearing that this was the Bible Belt and you needed mm, a permit mm. to get in here. It was God's country. So in some ways, I sort of knew a little bit about the area, but I'd never been here, never been mm. into Queensland. And um, yeah, so, I, so Uncle Graham took me to church, gave me a house. I became a Christian that weekend that he took me. It was really, it, they had a um, PNG pastor which was interesting because I didn't trust white followers still. Okay. And so he was pretty dramatic. And I just remember sitting there thinking, what the... I just, it was, because I'd been so sick and I'd had a psychosis and everything was so spiritual. It was like he, he was speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I went out and gave my heart to the Lord. And um, yeah, I haven't been out since. Did, did, was there a dramatic change when you did that? Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, the, the whole, like hearing the two days of his sermon, I suppose it just kind of unpacked who I was and what mm. was going on with me spiritually, like God did a big work. And um, out of that, that church was really good. It was in, on, in the Gold Coast and they came and picked me up for a few weeks. But then um, the, the unit that they gave me was in Narang. And, and where the unit was, 
I remember saying to the kids, to the girls, we need to go and find out a church for us. Like, um, and we normally cut through the back paddock, but there'd been a lot of rain. And so it was really muddy, it flooded. And so we went around the street. And as we went around, there was a man um, hanging out a banner and it had Grace Fellowship International. And so I'm like, oh, here's a church here. Yeah. And so we literally just went in and went up the stairs. His name's John, he welcomed us there. And we just went in there and we stayed there for 11 years. Wow. Yeah, and, and when I say about white fellas, so this church was all white and mostly old people. And so what happened was through that process, like I forgave white people, I trusted them, I loved them, and um, I had a life there. And, and it was, and like, and through that too, like I, I met someone and I had Malachi and the church was very gracious, very supporting, wasn't judgmental. And I was only a new Christian, probably mm. six months in, and I fell pregnant. And yeah, they just, I did 11 years of like Bible study and fellowship, counseling. Like it, it was kind of, I felt like it was a bit like an ICU. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for me. And yeah. and yeah, and yeah, I loved it. Go back in your story. When did art and creativity start? Yeah, so um, when I was 17, I painted a couple of things um, hanging around in Mildura and stuff. And so I could, I don't know how I, I could just paint straight away. Um, I don't know how I, oh, yeah, I don't know how I learned how to do the base colours mm. and things like that. Because I've always known to do two coats of black, ba um, black base and stuff. So um, I remember painting a few times when I was 17 and then I didn't paint like I moved and had the kids. And then when my dad died, I started painting and I pretty much painted from there on in. And um, yeah, so that's when I started essentially. Given, given your background, so there's, there's not like training in art, there's yeah. not even training in your community. So how'd you know what to paint? So, so my mum was an artist and um, a poet and activists and things like that. But she, it was funny, like she didn't, she painted like abstract, mm -hmm. like not indigenous at all. And she'd use oils and things. But when I went to TAFE, I was in a, um, so it was year 11 and 12, but it was an indigenous sort of, so they had us in a hall. It was, it was supported differently. We weren't in the TAFE. So in there we, we did cultural things and we had Kevin Gilbert, so Uncle Kevin, and he came and talked about art and things as well. And so I think I, like with my culture, so I grew up in culture. So even though I had a white dad, he took us to a town where there's a lot of indigenous people. So you just pick up all those traits. Mm. And even stories, like even burial sites and the significance of the cut and the canoe tree. So I, I grew up hearing all of that uh, in my childhood and teenage life. And then when I got to, when I did start painting, it was really, I, I kind of just picked it up really quickly and I, and I had a couple of launches in Parliament House. Like, so I could just visualise things and paint them and deliver mm. the yep. goods essentially to government publications and things like that. Wow. So at first it, it was a, just expression of who you were, uh, creativity, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yep. When you came to faith, became a Christian. How did that shift your art? Did that make a difference? Um, 
Yeah, so it didn't, not in the way of formula, like how I paint. And I mean, obviously the stories evolve as you evolve. Mm. And so in the beginning, um, yeah, I was very passionate about, especially as a new Christian. And um, I had, I'd put my girls into private schools and things, so I had to pay for it. And so I painted a lot to pay for them mm. to go to a manual. And um, so through that process, especially reading God's word every day, and that it just became a natural thing to paint what you're thinking about and what your thoughts are. Mm. And it's interesting, like, um, like through my salvation, so one of my first paintings was about to us a child is born. And so, and it showed all the things of our culture and how, how Jesus paid for that and, and how he was a man of culture as a Jewish mm. person and stuff. And so it was kind of like my revelation of culture and God and who I was as a person. And so that all reflected into my art mm -hmm. because, because I like had trauma and like identity and things like that, um, that all reflected into my art. And I had to kind of work out my faith because, yep. because I was in a Catholic institution and there was abuse there, then when I first became Christian, my older siblings had a real issue with it because mm. of what the church had, had played out in our life and stuff. And so I had to sort of reconcile my own faith and being a Christian and an Aboriginal and Narelle Urquhart and having the impact of religion. Yeah. And I had to, well, I didn't have to, God had to do that work in me. Yeah. Yeah. And so that played out in, in the art. Narelle, clearly trying to pull all that together, your past trauma, the trauma from the church, your new faith, tension with your family. Is it just God's grace that gets you through that? How do you do that? Oh, yeah, so I suppose like God's grace for me is like, um, like unmerited favour and like mm. the forgiveness of sins and even the recompense like um, in my life because of him. So it's like he, so when I talk about grace, essentially, because I feel like I was the worst of the worst in some aspects, like, mm. like with all my family, I, I caused the most havoc. And so, yeah, and so, but God forgave me mm. and um, for all the things and he paid for those things. And yeah. so I think because I've been forgiven so much, I love so much. Mm. And mm. that's kind of how it plays out, just yeah. his His goodness for me and his plans for me yeah. and sort of like what the world says about aboriginals and what australia thinks of us and what our history says and all that isn't what he says yeah, yeah. and so it's funny like i sort of realized like through through that early part of my faith that god had made me an aboriginal woman in this nation and like even things like him saying that we're born into a time such as this. Mm. This is my time and this is my portion. Mm. And so it's kind of like what the world said or... Uh, so what happened was everything outside made up who I was inside and I didn't feel good about myself as an Aboriginal person. Whereas now it's my inside that determines my outside and mm. that's because of him and what he's doing within me. So within your art, yeah. It's not just an expression of who you are. There's also, you're trying to say something in your art as well, aren't you? Yeah, 
Yeah, um, so it gives you a voice, like yeah. it's a, a platform or a medium yeah. in which you can be heard. Yep. Yeah, and it, um, yeah, like it, again, it dovetails. Yeah, like so you're trying to communicate. Like, for instance, this piece that's on the table here, yeah. how, what does that say? What, what, what are you saying in this piece? Okay, so, so firstly, so Wadri, so we're tree carvers, so we have a lot of diamonds and those okay. kinds of shapes. Yep. And so they're like my traditional... Um, so this is this here is your you as a uh, your, your wadri yeah yep. yeah yeah and so what what this painting is it's like a song line so it's like when you talk out of history or you mm -hmm. talk out of place and so this painting is called ascension and it's about Aboriginal people ascending into high places so that's our lines and then this is us walking our traditional humpy the mission town city parliament and foreign mm. affairs. Mm. And the Star of David said that that's God's plan for us as First Nations people, like our covenant with this mm -hmm. land is that we take our rightful place. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's about us ascending into those places. Yeah. And um, I painted I lived in this house when I painted it. And it is a little bit about my daughter, Sinead, because she wants to be prime minister one day or president. And, um, but it's more about us as a people taking our rightful place. Yeah. Yeah. You're now working at Bond yeah. University. What do you do at Bond University? So I'm the Indigenous Engagement Advisor. And so essentially I do pastoral and cultural care within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander unit. So I've been there nine years. And then I actually work across all the faculties. And just on like cultural protocols, best practices, um, cultural awareness training. I do guest lectures. Uh, in law and medicine, sometimes business, sometimes psychology. So given your background, yeah. all the history of your own story, what was it like to turn up at Bond University? Yeah, so when I started at Bond, on my first day, I went in there quite confident. Number one, I had a daughter there for a year before I began. Mm -hmm. And so I knew a little bit about the university. But even though I had left school at 13, um, and this was pretty much an academia world. When I got there, I knew that they didn't know much about Aboriginal people. And so that's my knowledge. Mm. So I went in, de in there with a very high level, yep. essentially of cultural degree or, how or knowledges. And so that was my confidence when I went there. So it didn't matter that mm. it had all the sandstone and academics and doctors and da da da, because I knew what I held when I went to the university. Yeah. In your pastoral care of students, what are some of the challenges that the Indigenous students there face? Yeah, so so it's so we do have like transgenerational sorry transgenerational trauma. Um, we have a lot of sorry business. Um, students a lot of the time haven't got a strong connection to culture. So our biggest thing in there is probably identity, like mm. who, how they see themselves. But I think. Um, I've noticed with our students, so because I work with non-Indigenous students too, I can see the resilience and the wisdom and kind of an old sort of age in our people a little bit because they have had a lot to get through in comparison to an, another 17-year-old. Mm. And so they actually are very good at writing and academia and stuff because they kind of run a bit deep mm. in their thinking. And so with, with our students, I just think that the biggest thing would be just identity and um, 
trauma and sorry business. Yeah. Yeah. What's sorry business? So a lot of deaths. So okay. our students have to go home for a lot of deaths. Yeah. And and like I don't know if like people don't generally know the stats and things, but um, in Lockhart River, the average age for a male is 45. And so those kinds of things play out in our everyday life. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. Identity is, is also wound up a little in how you look and yeah. your skin colour. And how does that work out for Aboriginal students? Yeah. So, well, again, like I kind of have this full tool bag. And so, like even in my own family, so um, my dad was white, blonde hair, blue eyed, my mum was dark. And so I have an olive daughter, a dark daughter, a blonde daughter, um, and then a dark son. And so, so even though, so if my, my fair daughter and my dark daughter go to get coffee, how they're treated is quite differently. Mm. And so we've had to talk through, through this pretty much their whole lives because there is a lot of racism and discrimination and stuff. Mm. And so through that process, it's kind of equipped me to understand and talk to our students as they come through and how they view themselves as an Aboriginal person based off their skin colour and connection. And you've used art to help explain yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I did a painting called Coffee. Yeah, just look at your painting. Yeah. Show us your painting. Yeah, so I had a student and um, a few years ago and I did this when I spoke to him about um, identity. So essentially if you get coffee and you put hot water, it's black, a bit of milk, it's brown. A lot of milk, it's really milky, but still coffee. Mm. So it doesn't matter how much milk's in us, we're still coffee. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's what that painting's about. And, and that was to help a student kind of grapple with um, identity. Yeah, to say that it doesn't matter how much milk's in you, you're still Aboriginal. Yeah. And I think I'm a little bit staunch about that too because, because I grew up hearing I was a half caste and quarter caste. It was kind of like I was being watered down, like, mm. it, like the mm. Aboriginal part was less. And so, yeah, so I, liked, so I did that painting for that analogy. Yeah. Mm. What's your passions and dreams and hopes for the Indigenous people of this nation? Um, well, I think there's kind of two parts to it. So with our history and even our current situation, it's kind of like it's all about us as Aboriginals, whereas it's probably more about non-Indigenous people and how they view us and their reactions how the government implement things. So, so when I look at us, like I do know that we need self-determination, which we do have. We just got to get our confidence and like everything's kind of on the move. But then my biggest concern is non-Indigenous people not taking responsibility for their actions mm. and what they're doing and how they think about us. Yep. So, cause Aboriginals have to do all this training and do this and do that. And I think, why don't they go and do the training? Why don't they learn how to how to communicate better with us. Cause it's like, it's not victim blaming, but I feel like um, everybody has a part to play in where we want to go. It can't just be a deficit model onto Aboriginal people. Mm -hmm. Like it has to also be the responsibility of the communities and the cities and towns that we all live in. Yeah. And, and I think about that a lot, even at my age, like me being in the homes and my mum being taken, like you're probably my age mm. and there are people that are my mum's age and I wonder where were they when, you know, when I was taken, what do they remember about Aboriginals in the towns and cities? Like for me, it's like this is a shared story. Yeah. It isn't just 
Aboriginal story. It's an Australian story in which everybody has to take like responsibility and you have to be like progressive, innovative, truthful, open, like humble. Like there's all these things that we need to be able to shift this, like the narrative, because it still seems to be a lot that it's all on Aboriginals when it actually isn't. Yeah. Like, and I remember like hearing this old lady on Q&A and her saying, I am not the problem in this. And it's always stuck with me. Mm. Like when I think about myself and my position and being an Aboriginal, like I'm not, I'm not the problem. And yeah. so, yeah, so that's kind of how I view things and how, and, and I work that out through uni at university, like how I work with the Indigenous students and then how I work with academic and professional staff is trying to get them to see what their part is in it mm. and then also seeing what our responsibility is in it, like as Aboriginal yeah. people. So as you look back when you became a Christian, how do you think that changed the future for your children? Yeah. Okay. So obviously having faith is a big deal mm. um, because you know that God has a plan and a purpose. And so, and when I became a Christian, my daughters were three, five and seven. And so they had already experienced quite a lot of trauma. And so even watching them sort of get restored, know who Jesus is, realize that he is big and um, so as children, watching them grow in their faith and then really knowing and seeing like God working through them. So they're all, all of them are Christian and all their husbands are Christian. And so it's kind of, I don't know, like the sky's the limit, like mm. really, cause they're still quite young. Um, what he has for them is quite big, yeah. like anybody. But I just think like as Aboriginal people, um, I don't know how to describe it. Like all my kids are quite, like very business orientated, like cultural business, in a sense political, but it's more from a social justice. Mm -hmm. And they're also compassionate, empathetic, and um, yeah, they have a real strength. Thank you for joining me on this podcast as I unearth stories of faith in Australia. To watch the full Faith Runs Deep series and all Olive Tree Media content, go to olivetreemedia.com.au and sign up to the Watch Plus platform and partner with us today.